Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, Tonight we have two readings. Um, So the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 45 and we're reading verses 22 to 25 and that can be found on page 733. That's Isaiah chapter 45, starting at verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verses 5 to 18, which can be found on page 1179 of the Church Bibles. That's Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steph, and um, good evening, everyone. It's very good to have you here tonight. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Philippians 2, 
um, page 1179, if you just close the church Bibles. And uh, let me lead us in a, a prayer as we look at God's word together. In Philippians 1.21, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Our Father in heaven, as we come to set our thoughts on Christ tonight, we pray that the way Paul lived his life for Christ would increasingly be the way that we live our lives. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Have we ever finished a conversation and thought, ah, why did I say that? Why did I use that word or, or take that tone? Have we ever just felt grumpy with everyone around us? They just seem to be pushing all the wrong buttons in us. Have we ever felt like someone is cutting across our plans and we don't do it, but we, we want to have an adult tantrum right there in the center of the room? Have we ever seen someone in need and we know that we can help them, but we just don't want to, and so we don't? And then I wonder, have we ever thought, how could I change? If we are a Christian here tonight, if we are following Jesus, then I take it that we do want to change. That as a people, we want to live increasingly God's way in this world. But how do we change? We're in the middle of a series in Philippians, and we've seen how... The Philippians have come to know Christ. They've started out well in the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul is full of joy for them. They have come to share in God's grace with him. But now, Paul wants them to press on in the Christian life. He wants them to grow in their Christian faith. As is so often the way in Paul's opening prayer in his letters, he gives us some of the key themes and if your Bibles are open, just glance across the page back to Philippians 1, to his opening prayer, and verse 11 of chapter 1. Paul prays that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Philippians and all who read this letter to be able to, to grow to, to bear more fruit. We saw last week how the Philippians were struggling with their unity because there were issues of pride amongst them. Uh, they were still in some ways self-centered with their priorities. And Paul wants to help them to bear the fruit of righteousness that would look like humility, like putting the needs of others before themselves. But how does this heart transformation take place place in the life of a Christian? How do we bear fruit? Well, Paul says in Philippians 1, it comes through Jesus Christ. But how? Well, in chapter 2, Paul's going to show us. He's going to show us how that it is through Christ we can bear the fruits of righteousness. 
So two points for us tonight as we come to Philippians 2 and our reading. The first is this. Look to the example of Christ. If you were here last week, you'll see Paul holding up the mirror to the Philippians in the first four verses of chapter 2. He showed them their struggles with, with pride and self-centeredness. And now he shows them Christ. 2 verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, Jesus. And what follows is probably an early Christian hymn which is sung in praise and adoration for the wonder and splendor of Christ. As he makes this extraordinary journey from heaven back to heaven. Step one of the journey from heaven to earth. Our culture is very sensitive to someone who uses their status for their own advantage. I think back to the time of the Queen's death. Remember that five-mile-long queue of people as they wanted to just pass by the Queen's coffin to pay their respects. And then there was a story in the news of how Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby appeared to jump the queue. They, they seem to use their celebrity status to get to the front of the queue without having to wait the hours everyone else was waiting. And it, and it really wound people up, didn't it? Uh, more recently, when politicians act like they are above the law by not wearing a seatbelt in a moving car or not paying their taxes, it also winds people up. But what about God? Here's how the Son used his status. Verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, the Son had it all in heaven, equal with God, indeed sharing in the divine nature. He could have used his status to his own advantage, to enjoy the worship of the angels, to live a life of comfort, to not worry about the plights of a bunch of humans who had ruined their world through selfishness and sin. But instead, verse 7, he made himself nothing. Paul is not saying that the divine son stopped being divine when he stepped into earth. Indeed, in that first reading from Isaiah 45, when, when God himself says that every knee will bow before him, those same words are used of Christ later on in Philippians 2. He is divine. No, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Verse 7 continues. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. If you like, this is addition, not subtraction. The son taking to himself a human nature. Lizzie Simmons is a British swimmer. She has represented Great Britain at the very highest level. And uh, she tells a story of um, how one day she decided to uh, shun her kind of exclusive swimming uh, experience to go and just spend an hour in one of the um, local council swimming pools and one of the, the open sessions for the public to have a swim. And uh, mid-swim, a lady next to her stopped her and said, 
you're a very good swimmer, you know. Uh, Lizzie replied, um, thanks. The lady persevered. No, seriously, you should try and do a trial for a county or a club or something. Uh, Lizzie replied, um, actually, I've, I've, I've been to the Olympics a couple of times. To which the lady replied, me too. Which sport did you get tickets for? <laughs> a small example of misunderstood glory. How much more so when it comes to Jesus? As he became nothing, taking on human nature, people laughed at him. He's, he's Joseph's boy. What does he know? People mocked him and scorned him. They jeered at him. They called him a blasphemer, demon-possessed, they said. And they plotted to kill him. His own disciples didn't fancy washing each other's dirty feet. And so Jesus himself knelt down and washed what they would not do. A true servant. And all along, he was the one who made them. What a remarkable way to use status. From heaven to earth. And then step two, from life to death. Verse eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. The death of Jesus was no accident. He was not some victim of circumstances, a plan gone wrong. No, he willingly chose to die. He cried out to his heavenly father, not my will but yours be done. And out of love, out of obedience, he chose death. Not just any death, verse 8, even, even death on a cross. The Romans reserved crucifixion for the lowest of the low, the worst criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you were normally spared the cross because it was too shameful. But Jesus died on a cross. This is how low he was willing to go. And on the cross, they mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. But they were only half right. Jesus could have saved himself. He could have stepped down from the cross. He could have summoned angel armies to crush his enemies. But he chose to stay there for people like you and for people like me. Ruined sinners trapped in a pit of our own sin, awaiting God's righteous judgment for how we've rebelled against him. And Jesus hung there to take that punishment onto himself. This is the mindset of Jesus, from heaven to earth, from life to death for us. And as Paul reminds the Philippians of the mindset of Jesus, as he takes them back to this hymn of praise, 
He's showing them and us how our hearts are changed by Jesus. There is no silver bullet in the Christian life. There is not some special pill, a hidden routine, a particular experience, some magic formula that converts our hearts from their natural state of pride and self-centeredness to a place of righteousness where we humbly serve for the sake of others. No, this transformation takes place as we gaze at Christ. I wonder if we find this slightly disappointing. I wonder if you're thinking tonight, Pete, is that it? I was hoping for something better tonight to really help me change. Well, maybe try this. If you're a new Christian or, or, or a young Christian, and maybe you're in the youth or, or a student or, or, or 20s and 30s, why don't you try this sometime? Go and find one of the, the older saints in the church family, someone who's walked with the Lord for a while, uh, someone who just exudes this sense of humility. Someone who you just notice eagerly and cheerfully serving others at their own expense. Just go and ask them sometime. Why? And I am confident their answer will begin with Jesus. In the glove box of my car, I have a rather important piece of paper. It's a copy of my car insurance. And I'm very glad it's there because if something bad happens, I'm in an accident, I've got this piece of paper that will help me. But when things are going well and I'm not crashing my car, then I don't really look or think about the bit of paper. It's just there in my glove box of the car and just once a year I look at it to renew it. And it's very easy to treat Jesus that way. If something bad happens to us in life, if we die, it's really helpful to know that we have Jesus because it means that we've got a life to come. We've got forgiveness, salvation. But when life is going well, it's easy to stuff him in the glove box of our lives, out of sight, out of mind, but not with Paul. Our verse for the year, Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You don't end up in a Roman prison facing possible death and yet remain relentlessly joyful, <laughs> relentlessly passionate about telling people about Jesus unless you spent a lot of time looking at Christ and seeing and savoring his beauty. The problem is not with Christ. The problem is how often we look at him. How easy it is for me to go through a day, a week, a month without spending any serious, strenuous, deep meditation on the beauty of Jesus. 
But isn't this part of the reason why this month of prayer has been so special? If you've taken part, there's been something, hasn't there? Something's been happening. The Lord's been at work. And I think part of the reason is because we've just been looking at Christ. We've been praying through Philippians. We've been praying prayers like, Lord, we want to know Jesus better. We want to live for him and see his beauty more. And you know what? I think the Lord's answering our prayers. Let's keep praying for more of Jesus. That we would spend more time looking at his beauty, his heart, his example. Because as we look at him, our hearts are changed. From heaven to earth, from life to death, and finally, from shame to glory. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And when he returns, verse 10, every knee will bow. Verse 11, every tongue will confess he is Lord. And I wonder if we can see who will do the exalting, who has done it. It's not Jesus. It's his Father in heaven. And this is so crucial because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus went low and his father has raised him high. And if we are to follow the example of Jesus in humble service, if we are to go low for the sake of others, people might well take advantage of us. They might well mess us around. Who knows, like Paul, we might even end up in prison. But to see how the father treats his son Give us great reassurance. Glory follows shame. Vindication follows humiliation. We don't need to grasp at status or fight for our honor. We can leave all of that to our Heavenly Father. How does the fruit of righteousness grow in us? Look to the example of Christ. But second, work for the day of Christ. It's a famous story, but uh, on June 6th, 1944, the, the Allies landed on the beaches in northern France, and they won a decisive victory, D-Day. It was the crucial turning point in World War II. Of course, the fighting didn't stop there and then. It wasn't until the following year that VE Day came, victory in Europe, when finally the guns fell silent. And this gap between D-Day, when the war was won, and VE Day, when the fighting stopped, it's a, it's a great picture of the Christian life. On the cross, Jesus won the decisive victory over sin. And at his resurrection, he conquered death as well. And the moment when anyone puts their trust in Jesus, we're saved. But there is a now and a not yet to our salvation. We've just been seeing in Philippians 2 how Jesus is in heaven now exalted, but he will return one day, and on that day every knee will bow before him. And on that day, it'll be a day of final salvation. 
Paul mentions this um, back in Philippians 1, last week, Philippians 1.28. We will be saved in the future when Christ returns. And just as the Allied soldiers still had a job to do after D-Day, they had to still keep fighting and progressing forward until VE Day. So the Christian, us tonight, we have a job to do. Christ has won the decisive victory in the cross, but he hasn't come back yet. And in between those two moments of salvation, we're called to work until the day of Christ. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I wonder if we realize this, that the Christian life in between these two moments of salvation, it's a life marked by work, by serious endeavor. There's a, a life to live. And the therefore at the beginning of verse 12, it's there for a reason. The motivation to work this way as a Christian all flows out of what we've just seen about the Lord Jesus. As we look at him and see his beauty and his example of service and his exaltation to the place of highest honor, it's these truths about Jesus that spur on our work now in the present until he returns. We don't earn our salvation. On this point, Christianity is radically different from any other religion in the world. We don't have to do anything to be saved. We trust in Jesus. But having been saved, we have a life to live. We have work to do until Christ returns. What does this work involve? Well, verse 10, sorry, verse 12, it includes ongoing obedience. Now, obedience can be a bit of a kind of unpopular word in our culture today. It doesn't have a good press. Our culture tends to prize self-determination, defiant individualism. We can be whoever, anyone we want. It sounds brave and bold. It's also disastrous. We're seeing the fruit of that mindset in our culture, deep division, insecurity, and despair. But Jesus has been exalted to the place of highest honor. He is the one before whom every knee will bow. There is a Lord over all, and as Christians, we're called to obey him. Not as some cruel taskmaster. Jesus is the kind of Lord who first died for us. And in fact, the obedience he calls us to is nothing less than he's done for us. In fact, in verse 8, when he died on the cross, it was the ultimate act of obedience. We're simply called to follow in his footsteps as we obey, verse 12. And this life of obedience, this work we're called to in Christ, it's all the stuff Paul's been talking about. It's humility, not pride. It's service, not selfishness. It's love, not grumbling and arguing. We have work to do until Christ returns. But I wonder, at the end of verse 12, did you notice something that's a bit uncomfortable? He says, we do this with fear and trembling. What does Paul mean by that? 
he doesn't mean that our salvation is in jeopardy, as if we have to work really hard now to earn our way into God's kingdom when Christ returns. That goes against everything Paul is saying. The moment we believe, we are saved. What does he mean by fear and trembling? Well, verse 13 explains. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I don't know, just uh, imagine uh, you play five-a-side football on a Friday night with some friends. I'm sorry if football's not your thing, just bear with me. But um, you know, it's a, it's a chilled-out league. It's a bit of fun with mates. You have a good time. Nothing too serious. But just imagine next Friday evening, you go down to the pitches, and at the far end, you see a figure you, you vaguely recognize. And as you walk across the pitch, <laughs> you realize that it's Jurgen Klopp, Liverpool manager, in case you didn't know. Uh, he's taken some time out of his busy schedule trying to rescue Liverpool's season to, sorry, <laughs> to come and to watch your five-a-side football team mess around on a Friday night because he's going to come and help you. He wants to coach you for a bit to, to work out how to make you a better team. If that did happen, wouldn't it change how... It felt to play football on Friday night before you'd sort of joke around and mess around and sort of be half-hearted as you chase the ball. But if Jurgen Klopp is watching, you'd be all on it. No messing around. You'd be running hard, tackling hard, trying to show him what you're made of. There'd be a seriousness about your training. How much more for Christians? We don't have Jurgen Klopp on the sidelines or any other human trainer We have the Holy Spirit in us. He is the one who began a good work in us. He is the one who will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. And to have the awesome God, the Holy Spirit, living in us day by day, spurring us on to work aiding us, nudging us, prompting us to live for Christ. What an awesome life that is to live. Doesn't that change how we view our Christian lives? Doesn't it give us a sense of seriousness, of gravity, of weight about how we live until Christ returns? And it's good news. We need this help, don't we? In verses 14 to 15, I think Paul's almost certainly referring to the people of Israel. They were redeemed from Egypt. They were on their way home to the promised lands. And in the middle of that story of the now and not yet of their salvation, in the desert, they began to grumble and argue. And they faltered. But for us... This side of the cross, in the age of the Spirit, we have God living in us, helping us, aiding us, spurring us on. And so the end of verse 15, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As we work, as we live in the not yet of our salvation to come, we must hold on to the word of life. That is the gospel of Jesus. 
But as we hold on to that word and as the spirit works in us, so we are helped to lead this light that shines like stars in the night. What does all this mean in practice? Let me sketch out what it might look like for us tonight. Imagine next Sunday evening, before we all come together again next week, God willing. Imagine each of us on our own just takes 10 minutes to slip away quietly to a room somewhere on our own. And we kneel down, we open up God's word, and we meditate on Christ. We gaze at his beauty. We fill our hearts and minds with how he's loved us and died for us and rescued us and saved us. Imagine then we cried out to God. We prayed asking for the help of the Spirit in us to bring us conviction, to nudge us, to spur us on, to shape and mold us, to be servants who love, who are humble. And then imagine we all gathered here next week. What a difference it would make. Or wherever the Lord has placed us throughout this coming week, with a spouse, with a child, with a housemate, with a colleague, with our sports team. Imagine if we spent those secret moments gazing on the Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit as we pray and ask for his help. Imagine what it would do amongst us. Actually, we don't have to imagine we would shine like stars in the darkness. As we finish, this life of work that Paul calls us to is nothing more than he's living. Verse 16, he's running and laboring. Verse 17, he's like a drink offering being poured out. He's talking about his possible execution. His great desire is that the Philippians press on in their service, living a life of sacrifice for the sake of Christ, that his efforts amongst them would not be in vain. And if we feel uncomfortable about Paul's language of boasting, let's remember his boasting will be that the Philippian Christians love Christ and live for Christ. Paul is not the hero. Jesus is. And may that be true for us as we work for him. Let's pray. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Father, in these brief moments you give us, in this world, between the cross of Christ and the return of Christ. We thank you, you've given us work to do, good work. As we gaze on Jesus, Father, please change our hearts. Make us a people who shine with humility and love and sacrifice until the day Christ returns. In his name we pray, amen.